Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Bermuda has become a prominent player in the growing market for blockchain, fintech, and virtual currencies. To help us better understand what is going on in Bermuda, we welcome the Honorable David Burt. He is Premier of the Government in Bermuda. He joins us live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Premier, thank you so much for being with us. I wonder if you could just get, when I, when I think blockchain, when I think crypto, I don't necessarily think of Bermuda. So tell me what's going on on that beautiful island of Bermuda. Uh, thank you very much, Paul. Well, when you think blockchain and crypto in the future, you should think about Bermuda because Bermuda was the first country in the world to actually have a full suite of uh, laws and regulations to govern companies in this space. And we did that because we want to remain on the forefront of in in innovation in financial services. So now our Bermuda Monetary Authority, who is a world-renowned regulator, um, has a an entire fintech team and we are there now able to license companies in this space to make sure that consumers are protected and that companies can uh, grow and expand their services in a well-regulated environment. So uh, just I'm wondering, Premier, how closely do you watch the price of Bitcoin? Um, I actually don't watch the price of Bitcoin. <laughs> Glad I, I, okay. I just gave him a quote, Lisa, of Bitcoin. <laughs> I just popped it up on the screen. Well, I guess the reason why I ask is, does the price of Bitcoin uh, cohere or sort of match the growing or waning demand by institutional investors uh, for blockchain, for the services that you're hoping Bermuda will be home to? Um, I think that uh, certainly the price of uh, Bitcoin has a factor uh, because a lot of the companies that are backed uh, by persons who did make uh, a lot of money during the uh, run-up in the price of uh, Bitcoin uh, certainly are able to better deploy uh, that capital. But I think on a broader level, we're not looking at it from the short term. We're looking at it from the long term. This is just getting started. So what we want to ensure is that companies that are looking for that regulation have a home where they have a government that understands this. I have a technology background. They have a government that understands this. They have a regulator that's willing to work with them so they can design these new cutting-edge products which will not have, you know, Digital currency is its own asset class, but you're talking about new financial products, which heretofore you were not able to create, which you can now create um, with, uh, with these uh, new uh, distributed currencies. So when we think about blockchain, the technology, what are some of the applications that some of the companies that are coming to Bermuda think that might be some of the initial applications of blockchain or fintech, and broadly speaking? I can give you an example of one company, which is called Diamond Standard, uh, which has just announced that they're increasing the amount of jobs of which uh, they have um, in Bermuda and are currently in the process of being regulated by the Bermuda Monetary Authority. And these are things of which you can do which you weren't able to do before. They're commoditizing diamonds. So before, diamonds are one of those things you can't cut it <laughs> because it loses its value, but that value is there, that value exists. So you can uh, have secure custody of those. Uh, those diamonds, while at the same point in time leveraging those, uh, uh, leveraging uh, that asset and making use of it uh, from that perspective. And you can do that with blockchain. You couldn't do that before. So, Premier, I'm just wondering, we talk about blockchain, we talk about virtual currencies. Blockchain increasingly is becoming sort of the state domain of back office operations. Uh, virtual currencies still have a certain sexiness to them, but what is the primary uh, business that you expect to fuel the industry in Bermuda? Is it blockchain? Is it the back office sort of operations and tracking? Or is it sort of this idea of virtual gold? 
Um, I would say that it's more blockchain generally, uh, distributed ledger technologies, but they're, but they're hard to divide. Because when we talk about, you hear Bitcoin, which is a digital currency in its effect, but there are so many other types of digital currencies of which can be deployed uh, to incentivize certain types of behavior. So when you're talking about the data, the data which you own, how do you get paid for the data which you own, and many different aspects, these are just the new structures which are able to be brought in place by distributed ledger technologies. Technology. So it's the entire gamut. Right now, as I say, we're just at the cutting edge. We're just at the beginning. So we're now beginning to see companies that are thinking. So in Bermuda right now, you can have a Bermuda company that can tokenize a real estate asset here in New York City and divide that amongst investors into multiple infinitesimal divisions. These are things of which you can do efficiently now through blockchain that you were not able to do previously through tra traditional financial sector. We're speaking with the Honorable David Burt, the Premier of the Government of Bermuda, talking about all things crypto and fintech on the island of Bermuda. So, uh, Premier, wondering, you know, Bermuda's always had a very strong regulatory framework, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm guessing from the insurance uh, industry that, that, that's been uh, home to the island for, for a long time. Who does Bermuda compete against in these early stages of trying to be the a home or a trusted home for uh, blockchain type technology companies? Bermuda is not in competition with anyone. And there's a reason why I say that. There's a lot of other countries around the world that will be engaged in the hype cycle. The fact is that as this early stage is, there's going to be a lot of companies that pop up and a lot of companies that don't. In Bermuda, we started our licensing regime in September. And to date, we've only had one company that's passed our licensing process. And there's a reason why. We want quality and not quantity. We want to have those large institutional back companies that can actually pass those large hurdles because we don't want to have uh, as a, a jurisdiction that protects its reputation consumers that would have lost a lot of money due to a cybersecurity error and all the rest. So we have strict custody rules, strict cybersecurity rules, and all those things which is necessary for adoption of uh, this industry. So what I would say is that from that perspective we compete with no one. But I just want to say where Bermuda stands, there's only two countries in the world that have regulatory equivalents when it comes to risk with both the United States and the European Union, and that's Bermuda and Switzerland, and that's the class in which Bermuda plays in. Premier, there is a little bit of a complication recently, which has to do with Britain and Brexit. Uh, we do know that you guys are self-governed, but you are a British territory, and I'm just wondering how this sort of escalating debate in Parliament and, and the likelihood of, the increasing likelihood of potentially even a hard break uh, affects your, 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 your uh, territory's economy. The only thing that I can say is the uncertainty is not helpful. We hope that uh, someone would make a decision <laughs> at some point in time. Um, and it's very unfortunate, but Bermuda has its own relationships with the European Union, and those relationships will continue. Uh, we have solvency to equivalents in insurance that was not through the United Kingdom. That was through Bermuda and the Bermuda Monetary Authority directly liaised with the European Union, and those things will continue. We just hope that they can have some clarity as the nature of the relationship so we can actually plan our future engagement. But expect minimal impact Bermuda from Brexit. Do you actually watch any of the parliament debates? I, I woke up this morning watching pre Premier, uh, Prime Minister's Question Time. So I do, actually, my wife uh, laughs at me. She says that I'm addicted to Brexit and I can't get enough of the Brexit news. Well, then you could, you'd be right at home at Bloomberg because we cover it very closely. <laughs> well, unfortunately, people have to be addicted because uh, the outcome could potentially have pretty big ramifications on Britain and the territories. The Honorable David Burt, thank you so much for being with us. The Honorable David Burt, uh, Premier of the Government of Bermuda, joining us from our interactive broker studios in New York.
Well, as the U.S. and China trade tensions continue to simmer, markets are understandably nervous. And our next guest is eminently qualified to opine on these ongoing trade negotiations. Christopher Smart is head of Bearings Investment Institute. Uh, and from 2013 to 2015, he served as special assistant to the president at the National Economic Council and the National Security Council, where he was principal advisor on trade, investment, and a wide range of global economic issues. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Just want to get your sense, boy, the last 10 days have really seen these trade negotiations and the tensions between the U.S. and China really make a, a significant turn. Where do you think we are right now? I think right now we're still in kind of late stage uh, throes of closing in on a deal. Uh, of course, you get different messages from the White House in different days, but I think that seems to be where we're still headed. I think those who've done long-term negotiations with China, this is relatively typical as we get closer to the end where the bureaucracy back home may pull back from one or two agreed principles. Uh, and that's not unusual. I think it's not unusual for an American side, a political leader to threatened to walk away from the deal to sort of try and secure as much as, as he can at the end of the day. But I think that's where we're still headed. I think the broader issue, though, is that looking out over the next few years or even decades, uh, tariffs are going to be very much a part of our relationship with China. Whether they come off in the near term, I think they will always be looming in the background as a potential threat. And that's a new thing that investors and business um, managers are going to have to deal with. Well, and Christopher, we have seen money coming out of emerging markets funds uh, over the past week or so as the rhetoric has gotten increasingly heated between China and the U.S. If the threat of tariffs does hang over China and, and the relationship between China and the U.S. in the years to come, how, what does that do for EM? Well, it's not great since EM always depends on vibrant and growing uh, international trade. But I think as investors learn to understand what the new framework is, I mean, tariffs are principally on the U.S.-China trade relationship. Uh, that creates opportunities for other emerging markets, particularly in South Asia. We've already seen that over the last few years where costs in China have been rising. And so people are looking for expanding their supply chains to um, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and other, other countries. So that will continue as well. One of the concerns, Christopher, is as to the extent that this trade tension goes on longer than people expect and the, the tariffs remain in place, uh, it may prompt uh, China to sell uh, U.S. Treasuries, their holdings of U.S. Treasuries. Uh, what is, do you think that could occur, will occur, and how big of a deal is that? Well, it, if, if they did, it would be a big deal. I think the chances of them doing that in this sudden, reactive, punitive way are next to nil. Uh, it would be a tremendously self-damaging um, self act to undertake. China uses those reserves in order to help manage the movements of its own currency. Uh, and, you know, a quick sell-off would, um, uh, would lower the value of those, um, of those uh, treasuries it continues to own, as well as raising interest rates and all the consequences to the global economy on which China ultimately depends. So I think that's a very, you know, there will be times where they buy slightly less or they buy slightly more. But I think looking to that as the way they would react is the wrong place to look. More likely than not, they will uh, react by imposing new restrictions on American companies doing business in China, um, something they've been very good at, something they've been trying to loosen up on, but it's very easy to reimpose those restrictions, making it more difficult for American firms already in China. 
So, Christopher, President Trump has talked about how he now has to deal with this because previous presidents have not, and that the the, the relationship between the U.S. and China has been incredibly complicated, and China's been taking advantage of U.S. companies for years. As a former member of the Obama administration, what's your response? Well, we have been, as a country, dealing with the rise of China for years, for decades. And to be you know, honest, I think what President Trump is trying to achieve is very much in line with what uh, previous presidents in both parties have been trying to achieve, uh, which is to uh, recognize that China is a very big and growing part of the global economy, that we need it to be more integrated and more um, in line with global trade and investment practices. How do you achieve that? That's the big question. The president has chosen to be much more forthcoming on the punitive tariff side of things. Uh, it may work. Uh, you know, time will tell. I think the issue is that there is no single agreement that will solve the problem. Anything that is done or agreed over the next few months, these are long-term issues that we'll be coming back to and talking to China with for years and years ahead. And it's really much more about the kind of relationship you're able to develop with China to manage these issues, I think, much more than any particular deal that you may sign. Christopher Smart, thank you so much for being with us. Christopher Smart, head of Bearings Investment Institute. Uh, Bearings oversees more than $300 billion coming to us uh, from Boston. Christopher uh, really raises some interesting points, which is this is not that big of a departure from previous administrations in terms of trying to address the U.S.-China relationship when it comes to trade. It is just a different approach. And the question is, uh, will tariffs work? And only time will tell. Well, we did get those weaker-than-expected retail sales data figures out of the U.S. this morning. There is a question of what this means for the consumer. Joining us now, Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, uh, joining us in our 1130 studios. Craig, thank you so much for being with us. When you joined us uh, back in February, you said that the dismal uh, the dismal retail sales print that we saw uh, earlier in the year was calculated wrong and that you, st- you expect 5% retail sales growth for this year. Do you still see that? to be the case after April's report? Well, we were actually very encouraged by the April report because we look at things on a year-over-year unadjusted basis. In April sales, X autos, X gasoline, X restaurants was up 5.1%, a, a touch above our uh, forecast for the year. Um, and that shows very strong growth. The nominal sequential 0.2 growth, we think, is a faulty way to look. Faulty way to look at things because the adjustment factor is two to ten full points in any given month, you know, more than an order of magnitude. So the question is, does the 0.2 percent represent actual sales growth or the accuracy of the adjustment factor? So, we, but apples and apples, year over year, it's 5.1 percent up. So, Craig, we had Macy's report, and we're going to have a bunch of uh, the big retailers report their earnings coming up. Uh, Better than expected results out of uh, Macy's today. The stock's trading up uh, modestly. What did you take out of the Macy's numbers? Well, the department store sector is 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 very troubled now, and the 0.7 percent comp they posted. See, it's like the old line: in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so, uh, of a sorry bunch, um, the, the 0.7 was a very credible thing uh, uh, performance. And 
the other aspect of it is the quarter started out very slow. The first six or seven weeks of the quarter were very slow, almost abysmal, down sharply. And so Macy's ended up on a, on a high note entering May, and we think it's, that may well be nicely positioned for, um, uh, for summer and back to school. Not that the 0.7 is going to be a point, uh, you know, 5%, but it should creep up from that point. So, Craig, I want to go back to what you were just talking about with the fact that you still are optimistic that the retail sales data that we saw this morning was actually much more positive than the market is reading it to be. What's the market getting wrong? Because you saw a sell-off deepen after this data come out, and you saw yields plunge uh, on, on U.S. Treasuries, given the fact that people are pricing in slower growth without consumer support. Um, well, I, th- I think there's a, there's a couple factors at play. Um, one is the accuracy of the adjustment factor and the census bureau has been changing their methodology uh for calculating the figure and we believe that the adjustment factors retail is changing so quickly um with the rise of the internet that um uh, that the uh, statistics generated by the census bureau we think are faulty unless you look at things on an unadjusted year-over-year basis and take online Online is by far the fastest growing sector. In December, they showed, since we showed like a, a, a 1% growth for the internet. That's, that hasn't happened like ever to have just a 1% growth. And then now this month in April, year over year, uh, it was 11.9%. Um, so they're, they're, the, the numbers are gradually improving on a uh, accuracy basis, but we think there are some questions about the methodology that we over time hopefully they'll get cleared up. So, so Craig, when I look at the Macy's release, I see a lot of uh, talk about from management about cutting costs, and I can understand the need to cut costs in a in an environment in a business where there's not a lot of top line growth. But at the same time, you feel like the traditional retailers, the department stores, ought to be investing in their maybe in their business, trying to come up with new models, new ways to reach uh, perhaps the 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 new consumer. How do you come out on balancing the the cost cuts to make your numbers versus spending to try to drive top line growth well i I think your paul your point is is well taken and and macy's and other smart department stores first of all they they, they're beginning to recognize that they're they work in a declining sector um it's department stores traditional department stores only comprise about 1.3 percent of overall retail sales so it's a declining size of the pie and so a store like macy's which has 680 unit fleet needs to trim the fleet on the one hand but ramp up what they call their growth 50, which is growth 150, which is the pr- premier stores that are actually you know, pulling the train there. And they need to, to dump about another 100 stores that um, are just not pulling their weight. So I want to just sort of broaden out here with respect to retailers, because we talked about sort of the weakening consumer, you think, is, is a data issue. But what about tariffs? I mean, how much can these retailers absorb the costs? How much can they pass it along? And what are you expecting there? Well, um, we did a study that shows about uh, of everything that's been enacted now, in other words, through I think it was May 10th, um, the, the households would have an incremental um, uh, 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 burden of about $560 per household. And to put that in perspective, collectively across retail, that represents about 0.9% of, of total sales, which is not nothing, but it's not zero, but it's not some huge uh, burden. And what happens is, is that um, 
retailers uh, 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 or brands that try to raise prices are going to meet a lot of price resistance uh, from the consumer. And if the retailer or the brand is smart, they will take that pressure from consumers and work it right back up the supply chain. Um, so, example, number one known branded consumer product coming out of China is Qingdao. Let's say the landed cost of a six pack is four bucks. And they try to raise that up uh, and after wholesale and retail margins, they're gonna get something around $11. Well, uh, from what might be now about nine and a half or $10. Consumers will flock out of that. They'll bail out of Qingdao. And if they want to keep the business, they're going to have to eat, eat some of yep. it. <laughs> That's, it'll be interesting to see. That's a very good point about you know how much will be passed along to consumers uh, or will be uh, taken by the supply chain. Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking about Macy's, talking about the retail sales number. Uh, uh, Craig says, you know, year over year, better uh, than the headline looks. And also talking about tariffs and the impact on the consumer and on retail spending. Well, two of the tech giants out of China reported earnings, Alibaba and Tencent. Uh, both stocks are up about uh, 1% to 2% today. So to dig deeper into those earnings and what it might mean about the underlying Chinese economy, the Chinese consumer, uh, we turn to Lulu Chen. Lulu is a reporter for Bloomberg News based in Hong Kong. Uh, Lulu, thanks for staying up late to be with us. Let's start with Alibaba first. What are the takeaways, the highlights for you from the Alibaba earnings? So for Alibaba, it proved to be really resilient, especially given how the economy has not been doing that great in China. Um, if you look at their core e-commerce business, so some really strong growth there. And then also the key metric that people are looking at is their customer management revenue, and that's where advertising is included. That posted a 31% growth, definitely a pickup, and showing the, uh, the fact that the company is able to monetize uh, uh, what it has been trying to push out a new initiative called recommendation feeds and based on what consumers like their past shopping experiences and and that has able been able to help the company uh, lure more consumers to buy products on the on the site and in return also get advertisers to spend more money as well so, Lulu, the fact that Alibaba posted sales and earnings that both topped estimates, is this a sign that the Chinese consumer is stronger than some people are giving them credit for? Or is this a sign that Alibaba is simply consolidating the market share? I think if you look at the total transaction figures, the growth was not that strong. So I don't think that uh, Chinese e-commerce as a whole is immune to the slowdown in the macro economy. But what Alibaba has been managing to do really well is um, introduce this thing called recommendation-based fees. And it's really using AI and algorithms to uh, show different people different user interfaces and product fees. And that, in, in return, generates more shopping uh, churn from users. And for advertisers, what they want is to make sure that their uh, ROI, their, their dollar, is spent in the right places. And so for them, uh, it, it's also great to know that they, they're targeting the right users when they spend those advertising dollars. So Alibaba has really been honing in on that. 
So, Lulu, let's switch gears to Tencent, uh, another large um, a Chinese technology company. Uh, they reported as well. What were your takeaways there? That stock has not been as strong a performer, you know, over the its uh, recent past as Alibaba has been. Yeah, it's a it's a mixed picture for Tencent. I guess uh, they also showed signs of recovery. Definitely, analysts are saying that the worst is behind us, given how brutal the past year has been, especially with the regulatory crackdowns. At least for now, their their game approval, the pipelines are back on. Um, the company is uh, rolling out this new game called uh, Peacekeeper Elite, and it's sort of in the same genre as Battle Royale genres, um, in the same vein as PUBG and also Fortnite. So the game raked in $20 million within the first five days. That said, there is also user reviews are kind of a mixed bag as well. So we still need some more time to see whether Tencent can really get back to its glory days where they were just posting so much revenue growth um, based on sheer gaming demand. You know, there was a stunning statistic in Tencent's earnings that the cash the company spent on investing in other companies was halved from the year before. How bearish is that for the entire tech sector in China? Um, that statistic is, uh, is based on, uh, I think what the company really said was that the amount that they spent on uh, cash for investing and its investing as a whole uh, has actually dropped. And uh, investing in portfolio companies is definitely part of that. Um, for Tencent, um, management has always been very adamant in the sense that they said they say that they are going to keep investing. The company has invested in more than 700 companies globally. I don't think they're backtracking from that strategy as of now. So, Lulu, just real briefly, did either company uh, have any commentary on what they thought or how they thought trade uh, negotiations would go? Yeah, Alibaba, um, Joe Tsai, vice chairman for Alibaba, was very vocal about this. Um, he tried to obviously put a positive spin on it and say that as part of the negotiation for the trade wars, uh, China will become a net import country, and Alibaba has been positioning for this for a very long period of time. They really want to leverage their cross-border transaction uh, infrastructure uh, to fully help other exporters outside of China to sell to Chinese consumers. And it's all part of the whole consumption upgrade narrative that they've been talking for many years. Very good. Lulu Chen, thank you so much. Lulu is a reporter uh, for Bloomberg News uh, in Hong Kong, staying up late to cover the Alibaba and Tencent earnings and to share her thoughts with us. We appreciate that. Again, Alibaba and Tencent, two Chinese tech giants reporting earnings. I think Alibaba, people really look at the Alibaba story really as a call on or a view into uh, the Chinese consumer and consumer yeah. spending. And, uh, you know, good numbers, Lisa. And uh, I think, you know, at least in the short term, um, you know, not much of an impact from the trade uncertainty, but obviously it'll be um, quarters to come to see how the Chinese consumer really responds to trade uncertainty. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.